New Year, everybody. Good to see you. You know, I was just um, thinking about the whole self-control thing, and I'm like, you know, I, man, I, maybe I want to be in kids' church yeah. this month. How about you, right? Self-control, things that I say. I think we'd all benefit from a little more. Um, what was the, I think it was the fourth one, think before you speak, or Okay, I'm going to say it. Think before you put it online. That would be a good idea, too. I just, anyway. Oh, my goodness. Uh, wow, I was just commenting earlier. Last Sunday, um, of course, we, we, we didn't have service because we were um, giving volunteers and staff a chance to be with their families. And I, we went, ended up going to the gathering place later in the afternoon um, near downtown Tulsa. And we're actually contemplating wearing shorts. Wow, what a difference a year makes, right? Or not a yeah, a year, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> a little slip there. That's all right. So for those of you who are watching online, it was like 75, 80 degrees, and today when I got up, um, the wind chill was two. Uh, that's what we call up in Wisconsin stupid cold, and um, yeah, I just I, I anyway, uh, winter has arrived. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll, we'll go there. I hope that your uh, Christmas and your New Year's celebration were blessed. I really do. Um, it's, it's been a, a, a fun week just to kind of have some downtime. And so I'm really glad that we're all here, that we're together, that you're with us online. And, and those of you who might be watching this later on, we're glad that you're tuning in as well. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I'll be your guide for the next 30 minutes or so. We've been following... Um, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, and I'm going to wrap it up uh, today because for me, I don't like when Christmas is over like New Year's Day. I just, I don't, you know what, I still listen to Christmas music, so, you know, if you don't like it, that's okay, there's prayer for that, and uh, we, we like to try to listen, you know, to that kind of stuff, um, you know, few days afterwards, just to kind of linger in the holiday. So we're going to do that uh, in the scripture too, as we we wrap up the first two chapters of Matthew and his version of the Christian uh, the Christmas story. <clears throat> and I want to just remind you, because it's been a little bit since we've we've been together, that Matthew has uh, a certain agenda in mind. He's writing to an audience of skeptical Jews. I mean, these are people who. Um, have grown up in the, the Jewish religious tradition, and they're listening to the stories of Jesus, and they're going, yeah, I'm not buying it. They're, they're, they're not so sure that Jesus is the actual Messiah that he's claiming to be. And, and so um, Matthew kind of takes it upon himself to look hard at the history of the Jewish people and um, trying to show them uh, where Jesus matches up really with this idea of the Messiah. He is building a case for Jesus as the Messiah. And so today we're going to finish the narrative, so we're going to return back to the text, Matthew chapter 2, to kind of complete our journey. So um, where we left the story is uh, that um, the uh, wise men, the magi, uh, have found the baby, they've left, and Joseph is warned in a dream uh, just like another Joseph who was warned in a dream, uh, and he takes his, his uh, child to Egypt. And so we're going to pick this story up in Matthew um, chapter 2, verse 19. So here we go. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. 
and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So in other words, there's this dream that Joseph has where God says the coast is clear. You, you can go back now. Now there's no real indication as to how much time has passed. Um, you know, we know from some historical records uh, that you know, Herod died in roughly 4 uh, BCE, that's before the Common Era. And um, the interesting little side note on Herod, we, I kind of talked about him before. He was not a very nice individual. Um, at one point, he had had 10 wives. I don't know how he managed that. Uh, and um, he killed at least four of his, of his own sons for plotting against him. Now, whether it was real or imagined, that's a matter for historical debate, but that was Herod in a nutshell. And so that individual who is after the, the, um, the baby, Jesus, because uh, was potentially a rival for the throne, that person is now gone. So the coast is clear. He can return back to, back to Israel. Just beginning to see how the story is shaping up. Uh, then verse 21, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. And this, once again, just shows kind of the obedience, the righteousness, the um, trust that Joseph has in God. Now, let, let's, be, let's be honest here. It's really helpful to get dreams like that. Would you agree? Yes, of course. Uh, some of us would, would like a few more of those, you know, trying to guide us and direct us to, you know, where we need to be. But this is uh, Joseph's character in many respects. He did as the Lord commanded him. But there's a little caveat that occurs in the text, and I think this is really an interesting point um, to, to spend a couple minutes on. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Man, I'm telling you, Joseph sleeps a lot, doesn't he? He's getting all kinds of dreams. No, uh, I think this is just how the Lord is speaking to him and he is paying attention in those moments. Now, we need to have a little conversation here about um, uh, Archelaus. <clears throat> oh boy, he's an interesting character in history. So, when Herod dies, Herod the Great, that is, and again, I'm pretty sure he gave himself that name. Maybe, maybe not. But when Herod dies, his kingdom is then divided up among his three sons, remaining eldest sons. Not, obviously not the ones that he had knocked off earlier. <clears throat> so it gets divided up between uh, the three eldest. And Archelaus, he is the worst of the bunch. I, I mean, there's, there is no way of sugarcoating it. From a historical perspective, he was just nasty. I mean... He's like the Grinch on steroids. And you really need to understand that piece of the puzzle. Because Joseph um, had heard this. It's verse 22. And he was afraid to go there. Yeah, good reason. Um, Archelaus had this tendency to continue the violence that his father had. Um, and at one point, it got so bad in Israel, Ar Archelaus was such a horrible leader, and 
was such a tyrant that the Jews actually went to Rome and appealed to Caesar himself and said, we can't live like this. Okay, now I want you to imagine how conditions would have to be for you to send a delegation off to Rome essentially to talk to another tyrant about a tyrant who is really bad. Are, are, you, are you catching this? I mean, this is, this is a, a big deal. Um, so the Jews actually appealed to Rome and, um, and uh, Archelaus was, was eventually exiled. He's like, no, you can't, you can't rule anymore. You're, you're just not a very good manager. So, so as you can probably imagine, um, the character of this individual, Archelaus, um, would not have tolerated another rival to his throne, just like his father. And so the policies that, that Herod pursued, Archelaus is going to do, and probably um, in spades. His brutality is well documented. And, and what's fascinating is that there's a, there's a common, uh, or a, not necessarily common, a, a famous Jewish Roman historian, his name is Josephus. How many of you have heard that, that name before? Josephus. Um, even Josephus didn't like him. <laughs> he, did, he was not able to have kind of like the, the historian's objectivity here. He just didn't like Archelaus either. Um, nobody really did. Um, and yet, at the same time, this is exactly the moment when God tells Joseph it's safe to return. Isn't that interesting? Because once he gets there, he realizes, well, hold on a second. You know, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to, to, to be there. And so what God does is warns him in a dream, acknowledging his fear, and Joseph then takes his family off grid, more or less. You're going to see why in just a moment. So let's pick it up in verse 23. Oh, there he is right there. Yeah, Archelaus, <laughs> he was actually called the people's ruler, uh, which kind of reminds me of like the People's Republic of China. No, it's not. Not really. You know, he's not really the people's ruler. Okay, verse 23. <clears throat> and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, we have to hit pause here uh, for a, a couple of pretty significant reasons. Um, because this verse actually causes Matthew some trouble. And you're going to see why in just a moment as we, as we go through this. So Nazareth, if you can picture um, a map of Israel, you've got the Dead Sea in the south, and then you've got in the north the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, right at the southern tip, if you went due west, you would run into this town called Nazareth. It's a small town, very small. And... Um, the term is often associated with uneducated people, what we would call hicks and rednecks. Seriously. That part of the, the, the country was the backwoods, and um, uh, in some ways you could probably go and hear the banjos. You understand what I mean? It's that kind of a, a feel to it. In, in fact, there's, it's almost got kind of a reputation to a certain extent, uh, later on, we see a, a conversation between Jesus and one of his disciples, and the question was, is there anything good that comes out of Nazareth? Ooh, that's harsh. But that gives you a sense of kind of what's happening uh, or, or what the reputation of that particular place was. Now, here's why it causes a certain amount of, of trouble. Um, because 
first of all, Nazareth is not um, referenced in the Old Testament at all. Zero, in fact. So Matthew's building this case for Jesus on, you know, essentially history and geography. And now Joseph is moving them off-grid to this town that really has no reference, no roots in the Old Testament at all. So, okay, that, that's a bit of a problem. Um, and then secondly, there's so little reference to this area that for the longest time, some scholars believe that it didn't even really exist. It was kind of a fictional place, which is interesting. Um, but the evidence does suggest that there was this kind of backwater place uh, on the southern tip of the Sea of of the Sea of Galilee. Now, what's most troublesome, at least in this particular passage, is what we find right here at the end. It says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Here's the problem. To the best of my knowledge, there's no prophet who actually says that. Does not use that word. Does not use that particular term. That's a problem um, because it seems like that phrase doesn't exist. Now, again, I reserve the right to learn something new, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to tell you that up front. I try to hold the things that I read in the scripture relatively uh, in, in a loose hand because I know that the Lord can give me new insight to it, but also I can learn new things about it. But to the best of my knowledge, that particular phrase, it's not stated anything quite like that. That's a problem, especially if you're trying to build a case, right? So here we have this phrase. And so we kind of have to think about, about this. We get some insight. Um, we get some insight from how this phrase is constructed, and I won't bore you with all kinds of grammatical details, but you need to think of it this way, is that um, it was fulfilled, um, or it fulfilled what the prophets kind of pointed us to. Does that make sense? So, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, or um, so it was fulfilled what the prophets were kind of saying to us, what they were pointing us to, what they were trying to grab our attention to help us to understand that he would be called a Nazarene. Because really what's, what's going on here is very likely a play on words, okay, on this word Nazarene. And we need to talk about this, um, especially um, in light of the fact that Matthew has this agenda, and Matthew's a clever guy. So there's some things that are happening here. And so there's really two, uh, what I would call, real possibilities here. <clears throat> and the first one, uh, what this phrase kind of means, is the one that you usually hear preachers talk about. At least I have, uh, as I was growing up. I've heard this uh, several different times. The Nazarene sounds like the word uh, Nazarite. Have any of you heard about the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament? Some of you may have, maybe you've not. It's an Old Testament idea, and a Nazarite was a person who was consecrated to God with a vow and a very specific purpose. And there's a, there's a few cases of them. The most famous of all, do you know who it was? Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. Now, Samson was not the shining example of a Nazarite by any stretch, but he did have um, on his life the Nazarite vow. And so when we see this, he would be known as a Nazarene. It kind of sounds like Nazarite. And so very often um, it, it's, it's interpreted as such is that he would be like a Nazarite. And it's very possible that Matthew had this in view as he was uh, writing his, his narrative. 
Um, so, well, uh, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarite or a Nazarene. So it might be a play on words there. That's possible. Now, the second um, possibility here is the one I think is a lot more interesting because it has to do with an Old Testament word. <clears throat> and those of you who know me, you know I like the words because I think this is really insightful and helps us to understand what's happening um, within the text. So the root word to Nazareth, Nazarite, Nazarene is Nazir. Nazir. Let me hear you say Nazir. Yes. Okay, Nazir. Thank you. Kids know how to do this. Yeah. So Nazir. And it means a branch or a shoot. Now think about that. It's it's a, a very... Uh, organic word um, out of botany so if you had a vine and branches you were you were kind of talking about this idea of nazir and i think that um, this is also in play and perhaps maybe this passage in isaiah illuminates it a little bit more um sorry a shoot will come up from the stump of jesse from his roots a branch, Nazir, will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? But a branch, a Nazir, will bear fruit. And I think it's probably better to understand this idea of Nazarene, be known as a Nazarene, because David's ancestor was, or um, Jesus' ancestor was David, and David was the son of Jesse. So there's a connection here. Again, Matthew is tying all of Jesus back to all of Jewish history, and I really think that this is um, a big part of that. So Nazareth, backwater, maybe. But it's not without significance in God's story. Which might be just an encouraging thought for you today. That even the most mundane of things are significant when God gets a hold of it. So that thing that, you know, that you wonder about might be significant. Maybe there's something that's going on inside of you and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I should, I don't know what it is. It's a new year. You might be thinking about the future a little bit more. You might be thinking, uh, maybe you're taking stock in who you are and what you have and all of that. Well, if Nazareth is any type of indication, don't be surprised if God will leverage some of those things that you're thinking about for his future. And it seems to me like, like Matthew here is saying, <clears throat> see, Messiah is written all over, even the birth of Jesus. You know, it's, it's one thing to, to look at the ministry of Jesus and, and to look at, you know, the kind of the, the prophecies surrounding him as an individual. But Matthew's starting right at the very beginning, and he's, he's kind of pointing, and he's saying, just, just hold on a second. 
There's more to it than just the ministry that Jesus had. And, and yes, there's death and resurrection, and we're going to get to all of that, especially, you know, as Lent comes up. But right now, at the, the very beginning of this biography, Matthew is pointing us to this idea of Jesus as Messiah. And I think what he's ultimately doing is he's setting things up for people to actually believe. That's what he's, that's what he's doing here. Matthew is telling his audience, hey, if you take our history, our history as Jews, if you take that seriously, then you have to take a hard look at Jesus. You can't ignore this. There are far too many connections with Jesus and what's happening in the Old Testament Testament and in our history and in our belief system and all of our values that you can't simply ignore him. It's fine if you want to be skeptical, but if you're going to be skeptical, be elegant about your skepticism and see where the connections actually are. At least that's what I think was is going on here. And frankly, I appreciate Matthew's work and his cleverness. And the story of Jesus is now deeply rooted in the long and broader story that God is telling through Israel. Because remember, this all starts way, way back. It starts in Genesis. And Matthew's done a good job of helping us to see where all of those connections are. And there are too many of those connections and way too many parallels for all of it to be coincidence. And frankly, it's fun to find them. Um, if you're interested in things like Jewish history, it's, it's, it's fun to read Matthew with that in mind because it is all over the place. Um, by the way, if you get to the end of, of Matthew 4 and beginning of Matthew 5, oh my gosh, there are things in there that will blow your mind. Yeah, maybe we'll get to them this year. It'll be fun. So we'll see. So, and while Matthew ties Jesus to Jewish history so well, there's something else that I think that Matthew does um, exceptionally well here. Because it's one thing to, to look at it historically, but it's something else entirely when Jesus really ties Jesus to humanity. It's both and, not either or. It's not just that there's a historical Jesus, but there's a, a Jesus here that's also very human. Is he divine? Yes, of course, absolutely. I wouldn't suggest otherwise. But he does tie Jesus to humanity. I mean, look, Matthew shows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He shows us the good. We read about it right away. When he mentions somebody like Ruth, and, and Ruth is this beautiful picture, I think, of, of what can be for a person. And then he also mentions the righteousness of Joseph. Again, what happens when somebody is truly obedient and is willing to get up and do the things that God commands him to, him to do or her to do, as, you know, for, as the case may be. And so we, Matthew shows us the good, but he shows us the bad as well. He tells a story, well, he alludes to the story of Tamar, which is a horrible experience that that woman had to go through. And then he goes and he shows us the, the brutal and conniving Herod, again, bad, very bad. And he also shows us the ugly because he points out David's sin by mentioning Bathsheba and the affair and the murder that surrounds all of that. And of course, even in the um, light of Jesus' birth, uh, there's the massacre of innocence, the whole reason why Joseph had to flee. I mean, good, bad, and ugly, those are human things. They all are. They're very human. 
And I think that's what Matthew shows us is not just a historical Jesus, but one that understands humanity and the human condition. I think that Matthew reminds us that God still leads and he still speaks because he even said that old men will see visions and young men will dream dreams. And and here we have Joseph doing just that, dreaming dreams and being obedient to the things that he sees, the things that he hears. And I think the other thing that happens as we read through this, if you, if you really pay attention to it, if you really see it for how I think Matthew intended all of this to be read, I really believe that you are connected to Jesus as well. Uh, I mean, think about this for a moment. You've got a history too, don't you? Yeah, everybody does. There are people and decisions in your history that you're not proud of. And I think Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, I get that. You think you got some crazy people, you ought to see my family tree. And I I think too that you're connected because your fears and your narrow escapes, you've had some, haven't you? Oh yeah, Jesus understands those because he's been through them. And you've got your hurts, and you've got your habits, those ones that you're trying to break and make New Year's resolutions about, right? And I think Jesus comes along to us in these passages, and he says very clearly, I know. Let me help. Because there's, there's something that's very human about this. There are all of those things that we experience just in these first two chapters. There's history. There's mistakes. There's circumstances. There's victimization. There's all kinds of stuff. Things that we all go through. And this is where Jesus chooses to, to come in contact with us. He's been there and he gets it. We're going to do this thing called communion. Um, We do it every family Sunday. And I always like the one that we do here in the first part of of January. It kind of sets the tone for the rest of the year. And one of the things that I I observed, I don't know, this was several years ago, but it always struck me is that I like this thing we call communion because it's an ancient ritual that Jesus himself gave to us. And the night in which he was betrayed, <clears throat> Jesus took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took a cup and after he had given thanks, he passed it to his disciples. He said, take and drink. This is My blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's ancient. It's 2,000 years old, this ritual. And so what this ritual does is that it connects us back to that history. Do you see that? Because for centuries now, Christians have done the same thing, the same thing that we're going to do. No, they probably didn't have the cool little plastic cups and the 
you know, the little wafer type of thing. It doesn't matter. The, the form is not as important as the actual ritual. And so we have the chance to do that. We have this opportunity to be connected to history. But here's the other piece that I find just so beautiful. There's people all over the world who are doing this very thing today. And they're taking this first Sunday in a brand new year and they're participating in this ancient ritual and that connects us to them, to a broader family of Christians, to humanity itself. And so while Matthew connects us in word, we're going to do a ritual that will connect us to those same things indeed. At Thrive Church, we have what's called an open table. That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, this is for you. We want you to do this as a brother, as a sister in Christ, because we're connected. We're a big family. It doesn't matter what tradition that you come out of. This is for you. <laughs> this is part of being the family. We get to, we get to do this together, and we get to be connected to one another, and we get to be connected to history. And, and here's the thing I want you to do. Um, Dan's going to come up. He's going to lead some worship. And as we're, as we're singing, this is, this is for you to do when, you, when you're ready. You, you take the little wafer, the little bread, and the cup. But, but when you do that, I want you to think about your history. And I want you to think about your humanity. And at the beginning of this new year, as you're taking that cup and as you're taking that, that bread, the thing that I want you to think about is, God, all my history, all my humanity, here it is. It's the beginning of a new year. What, what can we do together? I just challenge you to do that. Look, if that's not for you, you don't have to do it. That's fine. I get it. But why not start the new year with that type of mindset? With that type of humility, just to say, hey, God, I, I do have a history, warts and all, and you can do something with it. And yes, I am human, and I make plenty of mistakes. But you can do something with it and trust him as you go forward. So however that hits you when you're ready, you go ahead and, and take communion with those questions in mind, with that heart in mind, and, and be available to whatever it is that God wants to speak to you about. I do believe that, that God shows up in some of these simple things. And yet, those simple things tend to be very rich. At least, if the scripture is any indication of it. God, um, there's a lot of us who are glad to see 2021 just go back into the history books and looking forward to 22. There are other people who have had great victory last year and they're coming into this new year with a, a grateful, with a thankful heart. <clears throat> but I think most of us just fall somewhere in between. And... Uh, I think there's a part of us that we're really hoping that this year might be different. It might be different than last year.
And so as we, as we enter into this, we want to enter in with you. And as we, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, Lord, ultimately we're saying, here's our history, here's our humanity. What can you do with it? By the way, if some of you have made a mess of both of those things, it's okay. Uh, He understands. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that as people um, sing, as they worship, as they uh, participate in this act of communion, that you would reach out to them speak directly to their heart the things that they need to hear and oh God would you open their ears would you open their hearts would you open their eyes would you open their minds to whatever it is that you want to communicate with them Lord we need you we want to be people of presence we want to take that next step in trusting you so here at the beginning of this year we pause and we say Lord it's, it's your year. My life is your life and the things that you want to do, yeah, we're open to it. And Lord, I just want to say in, in behalf of us as a body, as a church, you are still Lord. You are still leader of this church. And uh, we want to hear from you what you want this year to look like for us. What are the things that you want to build into us as a, as a church family, as a church culture, as a, as a group of people who are trying to follow you? What is it that you have in mind and that we would begin to hear collectively the things that you have to say to us because we need you, Lord. It's as simple as that. People of presence begging for more presence trusting you to provide those things that we need. And finally, Lord, I just pray that as we sing, as we worship, that if there is any voice of doubt, any voice of shame, any voice that would block your voice, I silence it in the name of Jesus. It has no business interfering with what you want to do. We want to hear from you and you want to speak to us and we believe that. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.